0: All right, if you guys would like to open up your Bibles if you've brought those with you or you can open up your bulletins. Today's text comes from Ma- from Mark chapter 4 verse 35 to 41. If you guys would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. All right. So, Mark chapter 4 verse 35 through 41. Verse 35 says this. It says, "On that day when evening had come, he, which is Jesus, said to them, which is his disciples, he said, "Let us go across to the other side." And leaving the crowd, they took with them or took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, "Teacher, do you not care? You may be seated. Um, This passage uh, has always astonished me. Closer to my very good. All right. So this passage has always astonished me, um, and it does for a lot of reasons. Actually, I mean, Jesus calms the storm. That's pretty astonishing. But it astonishes me because of the way it's written, Uh, and, and I think all the gospels are written like this. And that is that it's full of details details, details that don't necessarily add to the story, but they're thrown in there. Um, in our passage it says that they took Jesus with them in a boat, but it says just as he was. It says that he was asleep, but it tells us he's on the cushion. The cushion never comes back into the story. It says that other boats were with them, but we don't ever hear about it. Uh, and the reason that, that um, he does this, or actually let me say it this way, Today, we author, or today, authors write stories like this. They put in details. They describe scenes with smells and tastes and, and, and all this other stuff to, to essentially put you into the room to bring the story to life, right? But people didn't start writing like this until about 150 years ago. Especially in the times of the Bible because paper was rare and expensive and, and you only wrote what was necessary for the story. But C.S. Lewis, who is not just a children's author, but an expert, a doctor at Oxford of of ancient literature, he said that the details in the gospel, just like this story, are amazing uh, because nothing like it would exist for another 1,600 years. And he said the reason these details are added is very simply because they're eyewitness accounts. They're real stories that really happened. And so Peter is remembering this story to Mark. He's remembering Jesus sleeping on a cushion, that they took him just as he was because he was tired and ready to go. And so what C.S. Lewis says is that the only reason these details are added is because that's what actually happened. And the details that are so often in the New Testament are actually details you wouldn't really expect, especially if you were just trying to invent or start a religion. Like, for instance, you would never put that the first people to see Jesus raised from the dead are women because their testimony weren't even allowed in court. You would never put the heroes and the founders of this religion, which are the disciples, well, Jesus, but also the disciples, and and, and cast them as constant failures and people who never get it. That's how you bring down a religion. It's not how you start a religion that you actually want to succeed. That's how you bring it down. And so the details of this story are added, not to invent something, but to share something that actually happened. And in our story, a real story, it's about Jesus who really got up and spoke to a storm. And the storm obeyed him. It's not a fairy tale. It isn't a CGI-filled movie that's really cool. It's a historical event that took place on this real earth that we all live on. And it's unbelievable, and it's fascinating, and it's just as unbelievable to disciples as it is to us. But they wrote it because it really happened. And so our passage is, is, is about Jesus who calms the storm. And it's a real story. And it's a true story. But we're going to learn three things from it. The first thing we're going to learn from this story is we're going to see the power of Jesus. We're also going to see that the question that Jesus, ter- in turn, asks his disciples. And we're going to see the sign of Jesus or what this story points to. So the first thing we're going to see today is the power of Jesus. Now, in sort of understanding the story, you have to, you have to know that in ancient cultures, it was pretty unanimous, like the Babylonians and the Romans and all these other you know, cultures. It was unanimous that only the gods could control the sea and the storms. Because the sea and the storms, nature, it was untamable. It was powerful, it was dangerous, and the sea was full of huge, scary sea creatures. And so only the most powerful gods could control it. And so uh, in order to have any control over the sea, what man needed to do was make sacrifices to those gods and pray to those gods and and, um, pay homage to those gods so that the sea wouldn't swallow them up and eat them up or the storms wouldn't come and, you know, rip down their houses. Um, and so man could do nothing against such great forces like nature and the sea, and only the strongest gods could control them because the power of these forces was so great. And then along comes our story of Jesus, who's in a boat in the Sea of Galilee, and his disciples who are fishermen, which means that they're, they're sailors, right? They, they're in boats for a living trying to catch fish. They're sailors, and they're gliding across the waters, and Jesus is asleep on a cushion, and suddenly a great storm comes in, and it starts, it starts slamming against the boat, and the, there's water piling up, and the disciples are thinking, this is really bad. Like, we, we know this is really bad. We might go in the water, and if we go in the water, we're dead. But Jesus is still asleep somehow. <laughs> And finally, one of his disciples goes down and shakes Jesus, and they wake him up. They're like, hey, man, we need your help. (laughs) Like, pull some ropes, do some sailor stuff. And they ask him a question, and Jesus just simply stands up, and he, he looks to the sky and to the waves, and he says, be still. Peace. And he tells it to stop, and it does. It obeys him, and there's a great calm. And I'm sure this is incredibly spectacular to behold. If you could imagine it. How spectacular it would be to see a man speak to the winds and the waves and it obeys him. That's what happens. Um, Interestingly, there's a man, um, he's a psychologist from about 100 years ago. He's very influential. His name was Sigmund Freud. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he had a lot to say about religion. He had a lot to say about a lot of things, but he had a lot to say about religion. Um, And it's really seeped into our modern thinking and the way that people think about religion, especially non-religious people. Um, And he said that religion was invented because of man's fear of the world. Religion was invented because of our intense fear of the natural world. Think death and storms and famines and crops and all these things that, you know, he said, we can't control any of that. And so we're afraid of it. We're afraid of nature. We're afraid of the forces that we can't control. And so man created religion to give them a sense of control. Because if we can pray to gods and sacrifice to gods and, and do things that, like, you know, live good lives so that the gods favor us, well that sort of gives us some control. It gives us at least a sense of control so we don't live in fear. So we invented these things, these gods to give us a sense of control. But I want to ask him, well what about this story? What about this story? I mean, if he's right, you know, what we'd expect is our disciples who are dumb and naive fishermen who don't understand nature, like peasants, that they don't understand the use of the universe. So, you know, if Freud is right, then we would expect Jesus to stand up to calm the storm, and um, the disciples wouldn't be afraid anymore, right? Their God just did exactly what we'd expect them to do, you know, like... Almost like you know, they would be like, Thank you, Jesus. We're so glad, you know, we invented you. Thanks for you know taking this storm away, and we're really glad to be alive. But actually that doesn't happen here at all. It says that uh, in verse 41 it says that you know they were terrified by the storm, but verse forty-one says, When Jesus calmed the storm, suddenly they were more afraid. They were greatly afraid. They were terrified. They were terrified with the winds and the wave and all the stuff outside of the boat, but they wake up Jesus, and suddenly they realize that there's something far more powerful and terrifying, and they was just sleeping right next to them. Because only God can control the sea. Only God can control the storm, and they knew this. And this man, who was just sitting next to them, woke up and told it to be quiet, and it listened and they're terrified. And contrary to the smart people who say that Christianity was made up to make us less scared, our disciples are far more terrified than they were before. And so we see here that Jesus has the power to control nature, to the, the, the power to, to tell the storms and the clouds to stop, and it obeys. This is a divine nature, this is something only God can do. To speak and the cosmos obeys. To say, let there be light and there's light. To speak into nothing and create. To, to obey the uncontrollable is what Jesus does here. And he shows his amazing power. His amazing and astonishing power. A power that only God himself could possess. So we see here first that Jesus has incredible power. But we also see in our passage that Jesus um, gets asked a question, but he also responds to the disciples' question. I want to look at that. Um, In our our story, you see that when the storm comes, and the wind comes, and it it, uh, crashes waves into the boat, that they're about to go under, and the disciples ask Jesus a question. They say, do you not care that we're perishing? That's what they say to Jesus. Do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care that we're all about to die? We're all about to go under, and and you're sleeping. (laughs) Do you not care? Now, I think this is a really reasonable question. It's a question that, that I think anybody who's ever seriously put their faith in God at some point asks. When life doesn't go well, when we suffer, when we're near death, When the people we love the most are near death and we have no control. When we hear the good news of the gospel and expect that our whole life is going to get much, much better and things actually get much, much harder, it's so easy to look up to God and say, Do you not care what's going on? Where are you? I think that there's a lot of people asking this question right now right now. In a time of pandemic, people are sick. People's children have died. Businesses that people have spent their whole life building and working towards and and homes and entire things are falling apart. And it's easy to ask, God, do you care? We've all seen marriages where people who were just so deeply in love now seem like two enemies locked in a daily battle. The pandemic has brought people who spent very few hours together. Suddenly, they're working together full-time from home with kids, and they're wondering, who are these people? And they wonder, God, do you care? So many people have had kids that I've met who were so excited, but they won't eat, and they won't sleep, and they won't be quiet, and they won't listen, and they're wondering and, and feeling so tired, and they wonder, God, do you care? I did an internship last last, uh, summer in Seattle, and I spoke to family after family after family who said, I have three kids, I have four kids, and every single one of them in their 20s has walked away from their faith, and they ask me, does God really care? So many people who pack their schedule to the brim and feel like they're underwater and feel like they've been living underwater and can't remember the last time they've had a breath, and they ask God, do you care? We fail at things. We don't get jobs. There's so much that's out of our control. We don't get raises. Our, our parents don't let us, their children become adults. And, uh, you know, adults never really grow up. And their parents never really seem to, to be able to be their own selves. And there's failings and there's hurts. And it's also hard. And we wonder, God, don't you care? We feel like we're perishing. Where are you? I thought things were going to be different. You see, the disciples, you know, they're, they're like, hey, Jesus, we put our faith in you. We've left our lives and our lifestyles to follow you. We're we're feeling like we're a part of something different, something bigger. We're following you, Jesus, and this storm is overtaking us, and we're all about to die. And you're just sleeping. And they wake him, and they ask, don't you care that we're perishing? (laughs) Now, there are so many things Jesus could have said and done in this moment. He could have woke up and said, listen, I'm going to the cross do I care? Do you know where I'm going? But he doesn't do that. We know the end of the story. We know Jesus cares. He doesn't do this. Instead, he stands up. He calms the waves and, s- and tells the storm to be quiet, and it stops. And then instead, what he does is he turns to them and he asks them a question, and he says, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? Now, what I think Jesus is asking here, he's asking his disciples, why when the storm comes, do you assume that I don't care? Why when this storm comes, do you lose your faith in me, in my goodness, in who I am? Why do you think that following me would mean that there wouldn't be any more storms in your life? Now, these are big questions if you really understand what Jesus is asking. And to answer them, I want to dig a little bit deeper into this story, into the sign of Jesus, or what I think Jesus is pointing to here. So the third point is the sign of Jesus. Now, there are many commentators who point out and say that the key to understanding this story is actually remembering Jonah in Jonah chapter 1. Because there's a lot of similarities. For instance, Jonah chapter 1 in Mark chapter 4, both have Jesus and Jonah are sent by God to proclaim a message, to do something for God, to say something. But also, Jonah and Jesus, both here, both find themselves in a boat. Also, both the sailors uh, in both stories are fighting for their lives. Both Jonah and Jesus find themselves in a storm. Both are asleep in the stern of the ship. And both the sailors in both stories turn to Jesus and ask, don't you care that we are perishing? And both Jonah and Jesus are the key to stopping the storm. And after the storm ceases in both stories, both men, it says, increased in their fear. But in Jonah, Jonah 1, Jonah looks to the, to the sailors and says, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. In other words, you're going to have to sacrifice me in order for this storm to stop. And the sailors reply, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us this innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging and they were greatly afraid. Though the similarities to Jonah chapter 1 and Mark 4, to me, are incredible. There is one giant difference, isn't there? Jesus isn't thrown into the raging waters. Jesus Jesus isn't sacrificed here to save his friends, right? Or is he? You see, Jesus actually comes up to speak to the Pharisees at another point, and they ask him. They say, hey, Jesus, show us a sign And Jesus answers them, and he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man, Jesus himself, would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but behold, something far greater than Jonah is here. What does all this mean? What it means is that Jesus is claiming, but he's also showing that something greater than Jonah has come. That someone greater than Jonah was here. You see, Jesus would be sacrificed to save his people. Jesus would be thrown into the storm, but not this storm, not a storm. His, his goal was not to stop the storms. Jesus was thrown into sin and death and the very wrath of God itself. He was sacrificed so that he could save his people. For three days and three nights, Jesus was dead, but he would rise again. And in his rising again, he would claim a victory once and for all over sin and death and all suffering and all despair. Jesus wasn't thrown into the sea because he didn't come to be thrown into the sea. Jesus calmed the storm, showing not only that he was man, but that he was God himself. And instead, Jesus came to be nailed to the cross. He came as a truly innocent man who was sacrificed to save his people. But unlike Jonah, Jesus was God himself. And he was powerful, which means that Jesus had all the power to avoid the cross He had all the power to to call down legions of angels. He could have just said no. (laughs) But instead, Jesus enters in. He enters in and he defeats our enemies by bearing it all, by by bearing all the sin and suffering of this world, by by bearing all of our sin. He enters into it and he defeats it. By bearing it on himself and rising again victorious. And it's only by Christ's power now that we know that all sin and suffering and death will be put away, be put to death in the end when he returns. So to ask the question, Jesus, do you care that we are perishing? It's fascinating. Jesus, don't you care about my suffering? Jesus, don't you care about my marriage, my children? Do you care about this pandemic? Do you care about the tears that I cry when no one's looking? Do you care about my loneliness, my depression, my anxiety? Do you care about all the things that I can't control that bring so much pain and misery? The answer is yes, emphatically yes, of course he does. We know this because of the cross. Jesus came to earth because he cares. Jesus entered into the suffering and into our our sin and brokenness because he cares. He defeats evil and takes on death himself because he cares for us. If Jesus had stayed in heaven, we all would have perished. We all would have been lost. Death would have been the end of our stories, but he comes. And because he comes and has the ultimate victory over all of our enemies, we know that we can endure these things because the battle's been won. The battle's already been won, which means none of these things can crush us because he crushed them once and for all. Well, maybe you say, Nate, I understand that. But you see, I became a Christian because I wanted a better life. I thought if I followed God, I wouldn't suffer anymore. That's why I became a Christian. And doesn't following Jesus that we won't ever be thrown into storms or I won't encounter any more suffering? And I think that I understand that, and I, I feel that too, but I don't think this is the case. You see, other religions teach this. They teach if you follow these laws, if you stop sinning, if you're a good person, you won't suffer anymore, right? My Facebook is filled with karma. You know, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, but anybody who's lived in the real world knows that that's not true. Christianity also doesn't claim this. In fact, Jesus is actually challenging this very idea in our text, and he turns the question back On the disciples. Because Scripture teaches from beginning to end that God, that Jesus, would defeat all the enemies of sin and overcome the evil one and impart that victory to us. And so now we have the power, we have the calling to take up that very same mission that God came to do. We pick up that mission ourselves, which means that if the gospel is true, we've been equipped not only to suffer differently with the hope that the gospel gives us, but also we can enter into the suffering of others we can go into the suffering of others we can fight against evil and sin and injustice we can be a light to the darkness in fact that's exactly what christ calls us to do in other words because of christ's victory because because we've been equipped by him we have the power to fight against sin and injustice in a brand new way it's with the power and hope of the gospel to not lose faith or to doubt god's goodness even though we might find ourselves in chaos This reality of what Jesus has done is why you find Christians all over the world who are suffering with the weak, with the poor, with the broken, with the powerless. It's why you find them leading movements to fight against sin and injustice. It's why you find them trying to end slavery and sex slavery. It's why you see people all over the world caring for widows and orphans. It's why you see people give away their money, all of it in some cases. It's why you see them fighting for marriages and sacrificing for their children, even if they do walk away from their faith. The gospel gives us an incredible strength and courage and hope to suffer with those who suffer and to weep with those who weep. It reminds us that even when the world is in a storm around us or there's suffering all over, God is always with us. He cares more than we could ever imagine, and He will right the wrong. In fact, Jesus may very well be the one who sends you into the hard places because Christ is with you and so where you go he goes with you. <laughs> this doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean it's not difficult. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that you won't cry a lot. But it does mean that these things can never conquer us because the victory has already been won. So we see in our passage the reality of Jesus, that, that, that Jesus was a powerful being, that he was God himself, but also we get to see the question that Jesus asks all of us when we ask the question that we ask him. He, he, he asks us a question in return, but we also see that Jesus is a greater Jonah, a greater sacrifice, with a greater mission, and a greater power to conquer evil, sin, and death, even though he was sacrificed for us. A few hundred years ago, a man was reflecting on these two passages together, and he wrote in a commentary, he said, In Jonah 1, I see a picture of the church. The pagan, unbelieving world around is screaming for help. They need to hear about our God. They need to hear and to have that hope. And where is the church? They're in the bottom of the boat, fast asleep, because ultimately they don't care that they're perishing. Some of us, sometimes even me, sometimes everybody, we can be asleep at the bottom of the boat. We can be asleep to the cries of our neighbors in our cities and in the places God has put us, in our workplaces, but Jesus teaches us here that it's good to wake up and it's good to listen and to see and to not be blind to the cries of those around us. It's, it's, it's good that we approach people, not like Jonah, and run from the people that God sends us to, but to be like Jesus here in Mark, who moves forward. He moves towards his disciples. He moves towards those people with love and compassion. Jesus teaches us that it's good to move towards people, and I think it's important for us to think, who am I asleep to? <laughs> Whose cries come into my ears, but I, I just don't care. It's hard to say. It's hard to admit that, but our city needs it. Our, our, our state needs it. Our country needs it. Our world needs Christians to wake up and to move towards people like Jesus. But second, I want to say that I'm very aware that there might be some people in this room right now who are suffering intensely and alone. And I know that in church we can talk about suffering from the pulpit, sometimes in a very casual way, and that in those moments it almost never does justice to the person who's actually suffering. We can talk about how hard suffering can be, but to the person who's actually suffering, it's often so much worse. And we as pastors can say things like, it's going to be all right, and, and here's how we get through it, and it'll be all right in the end. And you know what? Those are true things, those are true things but I also know at the same time that it is true that Jesus is suffering with you, truly. He knows your pain. He knows the sadness, and he weeps with you. He really does care about your suffering, and he really wants to enter into that with you. And I, in my experience, this is so often done through the church, through letting the people of God work in your life and speak to you and weep with you and to, see, and to, to sit with one another. For not only does God care that we are perishing, but He uses people to care for those who are. This means we need the people of God and we need the Word of God to to dwell with us and to walk with us and care for us when we are suffering. And so my hope for you is that you would know that you aren't alone and that the people of God are here to care for you if you would be so bold as to let them in. And for those of us who, who are God's people, this is a reminder for us to look out for those who are suffering to wake up, O sleepers, to look out for those into the world and into your work, even sometimes in your own home, people who are suffering. And it's to move towards them like Jesus does here. This is the calling of the church, that we would be a a people who do this and care and love one another, that we would love our cities, that we pray for Salina, and that we would be a light in the darkness, because we do care for those who are perishing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are Lord of the storm. We thank you that you care for us, that you love us, that you, that you are so powerful and that you did the most powerful thing of all. You rose from the dead, you, you, you killed sin and death. What a thing to behold. Would you help us, Lord, to see that all hope and all goodness and all glory and all honor comes, at you, comes from you, and it, and it should be given to you. And would you help us to be a people, Lord, who, who even though we might enter into suffering and things out of our control, that you never are. Help us to, to never feel like we're out of God's will just because we're suffering or bad things are happening. But in those moments, we would, we would, we would dig into you even more. Because you're the savior of our souls. You're the greatest. You're the king. You are the prophet. You are our savior. Make that so real to us so that way we love the world and love the people you send us to. Thank you for sending us to be on your mission. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.